Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, well, thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Ovarian Cancer Treatment Updates. It's a wonderful program and lots of wonderful information for all of you to have. And today's program is supported by GlaxoSmithKline. I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have over 200 participants on the call today who come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Cape Verde, Colombia, Iraq, Mauritius, South Africa, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And it's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us um, to learn more about ovarian cancer and its treatment updates. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz. Dr. Runowitz is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Florida International University, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine. And Dr. Runowitz will be addressing an overview of ovarian cancer, including staging and current standard of care and quality of life concerns. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Runowitz. Uh, thank you. I'm delighted to be participating again, especially with this impressive panel of speakers. So I look forward to hearing uh, what everyone has to say and some of the new and exciting therapies that are emerging. So I've been asked to give you an overview. Um, for most patients, the diagnosis of ovarian cancer is suspected by physical exam, symptoms, and radiologic testing. However, the definitive diagnosis is established by surgery, where biopsies or removal of the ovaries or fallopian tubes or peritoneal biopsies are performed in a surgical cytoreduction or debulking is performed. The pathologist makes the diagnosis. Epithelial ovarian cancer is the most common histologic diagnosis. Dr. Kerr, who is on our panel, will discuss the pathology and the importance of the pathologist as part of that team. For example, women diagnosed with clear cell, endometrioid, or mucinous ovarian cancer should be offered somatic tumor testing, that's testing of the tumor uh, for mismatch repair deficiency, as such patients may be appropriate candidates for certain targeted therapies, immune checkpoint inhibition, in the event of refractory or recurrent disease. And this is just one example, Dr. Kerr will give others. Complete surgical staging of epithelial ovarian cancer is important for treatment planning and prognosis. Cytoreduction, removal of all visible tumor, also called debulking surgery, is usually performed. In the case of disease spread beyond the ovary, the goal of surgery is to resect the tumor to minimal, ideally zero, gross residual disease. The best 
surgical outcomes are when gynecologic oncologists who are specially trained in these surgical techniques perform the cytoreductive surgery. The goal of the surgery is to establish the stage of the disease and to remove all visible tumor. It usually includes a total hysterectomy, removal of both tubes and ovaries, sometimes pelvic and periodic node dissection, an infracolic and infragastric omentectomy are all standard parts of the staging procedure. The surgery also may include bowel resection or radical pelvic and upper abdominal surgery may be required. However, in approximately a third of patients with advanced disease, the diagnosis is based on tissue or fluid obtained by image-guided biopsy, paracentesis, or thoracentesis, as the patient is deemed not to have disease that can be successfully cytoreduced, or the patient has comorbidities precluding a, a successful cytoreductive surgery. Neoadjuvant chemotherapy, that is chemotherapy before a definitive surgery, is started based on the image-guided biopsy. In these cases, it is important to consult with a gynecologic oncologist regarding the possibility timing of the surgery, as a gynecologic oncologist may feel that the patient can undergo cytoreductive surgery. Following surgery and after reviewing the pathology with the pathologist and the multidisciplinary tumor board, chemotherapy is initiated usually with adjuvant platinum and taxane-based chemotherapy. However, as already noted, some patients may receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to definitive surgery as an alternative option in certain selected patients. This is usually reserved, as noted, for patients with radiologic or clinical findings that suggest advanced disease that may not be amenable to a successful cytoreductive surgery to very low-volume disease. The standard approach for women receiving first-line chemotherapy is to use a platinum agent with taxane. For women with optimally redu reduced disease, that is, less than a centimeter of residual disease, or ideally no visible disease, there are two options, intravenous chemotherapy that's delivered through the vein, or a combination of intravenous and intraperitoneal where the chemotherapy is instilled into the abdominal cavity. For women receiving bevacizumab and antiangiogenesis treatment as upfront therapy, or as maintenance therapy, IV chemotherapy over IV intraperitoneal therapy is recommended. For women with a serous or high-grade endometrioid ovarian cancer completing first-line chemotherapy with a complete or partial response, maintenance therapy should be considered based on several factors, including the BRCA mutation status and homologous recombination deficiency status. Dr. Kerr will discuss this in more detail. Based on four randomized phase three studies, PARP inhibitors should be considered following chemotherapy in accordance with guidelines from the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the Society of Gynecologic Oncology. 
These recommendations are based on the observation that use of a PARP inhibitor as maintenance therapy has demonstrated a progression-free survival advantage even for women without a BRCA mutation in some but not all trials. While the largest benefit in the absence of a BRCA mutation has been seen in women who had evidence of HRD or homologous recombination deficiency, women without HRD also appear to have some benefit, although it is modest. Again, pointing out the importance of the pathologist as a member of the team. All patients, all patients with a diagnosis of ovarian, fallopian tube, or peritoneal carcinoma should have genetic risk evaluation. Unrelated to their family history, as the presence of a familial cancer syndrome, for example, BRCA1 or BRCA2 or Lynch, or genetic mutation may impact treatment and postoperative care. During treatment, it is extremely important that the patients relay symptoms and any side effects of treatment, which may be controlled or prevented. These usually include anti-nausea medications, closely monitoring side effects like neuropathy, ice caps, which can prevent or reduce hair loss, and other supportive therapies. It's important for the patients to communicate with their healthcare providers so that treatments have quality of life. Thank you, and I will turn this back to uh, Carolyn to introduce the next speaker. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ronowitz. That was an outstanding, stellar presentation, actually setting the stage for today's program, covering a lot of topics, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Molly Brewer, and Dr. Brewer is Professor and Chair, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Division of Gynecologic Oncology, Carol and Ray Nieg Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Connecticut Health Center. And Dr. Brewer will be addressing how precision medicine and testing inform your treatment decisions and new treatment approaches and follow-up care. It's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Brewer. Oh, thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dovetail on to what uh, Carolyn Runowitz said because part of what she was talking about was actually part of our precision medicine. Um, and this is also going to be discussed further with our genetic counselor. But all of our patients that have ovarian, fallopian, or peritoneal cancer are referred to genetic counselors for genetic testing. And so what this is looking for is what we call a germline mutation. This means a mutation that's been passed um, from their mother or their father because this actually opens them up for possible treatment options. So that's really the first part of our precision testing. We typically test for BRCA1 or 2 mutation. We may test for BRIP1. This is, and this is now considered what we call panel testing. Um, RAD51, PALB2, um, homologous recombination deficiency, which Carolyn uh, um, alluded to. And these are, all, um, these are all genes that are associated with DNA repair pathways. And when a patient has one of these mutations, um, they're 
DNA, their PART pathway is upregulated. And so when we give these patients chemotherapy in particular, the PART pathway is even more upregulated. And so this opens us up to what we call PARP, these PARP inhibitors. And what these do is they prevent the cancer cells from actually going down this DNA repair pathway. So the cancer cell is trying to repair itself from the damage that occurs from chemotherapy. And so the PARP inhibitors actually block this. So the way we're thinking about PARP inhibitors has changed over the last few years. The first one that was approved was Olaparib, and this was a drug that was mainly targeted to women with a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, and it showed a significant improvement in both disease-free interval um, and the survival data was promising. Two other ones have been approved, and a, a, a fourth one is actually on its way to being approved. Um, it's been unclear to those of us who take care of patients exactly how to use the different drugs. And recently, there's been some data that's, that's emerged that patients with a BRC or BRCA1 or 2 mutation um, benefit from any of these PARP inhibitors. Patients with this homologous recombination deficiency, so these are other mutations in genes along the BRCA1 or BRCA2 pathway, um, will respond, but they do not have as high a response rate as the patients with a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. Patients with neither of these abnormalities are not responding well at all as, as the data is emerging. The other thing that has come up is in the recurrent setting, and this will be addressed probably later on, but recurrent setting and platinum-resistant patients don't respond well to PARP inhibitors. So we're starting to figure out how to use these drugs. Other things that we look for are um, some of the genes that are altered in Lynch syndrome, because these can also be associated with an increased risk of ovarian cancer, fallopian tube cancer, primarily ovarian cancer. And these actually will open our patients up to potential treatments with other drugs. So now the, the newer precision testing um, is actually where we send the tumor off. So the first phase of it is genetic testing. The second phase of it is to send the tumor off. And the tumor goes to, we actually send um, usually slides or blocks, depending on what they're looking for. But these go and they look for abnormalities in the tumor. So if a patient has a BRC1, BRCA1 or 2 mutation, this will show up as a germline mutation. But they also may have a BRCA1 or 2 alteration in the tumor. And so again, these open up pathways of different treatment options. Other things that we look for besides these, these types of mutations are tumor mutation burden. Um, PDL1 is another thing that we're really looking at because both of these um, show that patients who, re who have these alterations will potentially respond to pembrolizumab. Um, this is kind of a new treatment in ovarian cancer, and only about 10% of patients will have either one of these alterations. But this opens up real hope for patients that do carry this. Um, we also, 
think about Avastin, which uh, Carolyn alluded to, and this again is kind of a precision drug because it targets a certain pathway that makes new blood vessels. And patients that have had Avastin in the upfront setting, um, if they recur, I know somebody else is gonna talk about this, probably is not appropriate. Um, another thing that we look at, and there's been some data that shows, as in breast cancer, if a patient has a tumor that's strongly estrogen receptor positive, many of these patients will actually respond to antiestrogens not dissimilar to breast cancer patients. Um, other drugs that are, are coming down are drugs like pazopanib, and this actually will target the VEGF um, receptor as well as the PDGF receptor. Um, so there's many, many, many new drugs out there that are being developed. And the only way we really know whether we have possibility of using them is with this precision testing. And so for those of you who have ovarian cancer, every week they're coming up with new drugs and new targets. So I'm gonna close with that, but I'll be glad to answer questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Burrow. That was wonderful. Um, again, it's a stellar presentation, a lot of excellent information, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next um, speaker is Dr. Andrea Hageman, and Dr. Hageman is gynecologic oncology surgeon, associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology, division of gynecologic oncology, Washington University School of Medicine. And Dr. Hageman will be addressing treatment options for recurrent ovarian cancer, including clinical trials as a treatment option, and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hageman. Thank you so much. And I think that um, this next segment really does um, you know, come nicely after Dr. Brewer's explanation of all of those targeted therapies, um, because that is exactly um, what we do in the recurrent setting, is try to target and individualize the treatment as much as possible. Um, and so as an overview of um, you know, unfortunately, ovarian cancer um, still recurs um, quite a bit of the time, and so we are we want to be ready uh, for that recurrence. And I think that tumor profiling or the the cancer cell uh, profiling that Dr. Brewer mentioned is just essential and and so important. The other thing that is very important is really the time from diagnosis and time from the last treatment. And we still, despite the era of all of this targeted therapy, really boil it down to whether the tumor is platinum sensitive or resistant. And we define that um, pretty succinctly as greater than six months from treatment with the last platinum agent. We would define that as maybe um, being responsive again to the platinum agents. So in the platinum sensitive category, um, we're going to think about using a carboplatin or cisplatin, a platinum-based therapy with another cytotoxic, um, potentially putting a targeted therapy with that as well. I will say that in very uh, kind of rare circumstances, there may be a very singular targeted area of recurrence that could be amenable to surgery or radiation. Um, most of the time, um, and again, very individualized treatment, but most of the time when ovarian cancer recurs, it is in the context of a multifocal recurrence in many places throughout the abdomen. 
but recurrence can happen in the lungs. And recurrence can, in fact, happen in the brain. Um, and again, depending on where um, the treatment is, where the uh, recurrence is located, is really going to um, define how we're going to attack it. Um, so platinum sensitive, uh, we feel we would use a platinum-based agent with something else. Um, in the platinum-resistant category, again, depending on previous upfront treatment, we may consider bevacizumab. We probably wouldn't, as Dr. Brewer mentioned, consider PARP inhibitors in the platinum-resistant setting. Um, but generally, we want to combine um, things that haven't been used before. Um, and again, tumor um, mutational burden, um, MSI high, all of these characteristics that we're getting from the tumor um, testing will help us program that therapy. Now, one thing I wanted to mention is just yesterday, on November 14th, the FDA granted accelerated approval to um, another new drug called Mervituximab. Um, that's M-I-R-V-E-T-U-X-I-M-A-B. Um, and just yesterday was FDA approved um, for the treatment of platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. This is in a specific subset of tumors that express a folate receptor alpha on the cell surface of ovarian cancer cells. The good news is that probably upwards of 80% of recurrent cancers will express folate receptor alpha, so this drug will likely be available to many people. Um, it is approved for the use of um, for people who've had one to three prior treatments for ovarian cancer. And it is it represents a new class of drugs that we haven't talked about too much before today called an antibody drug conjugate. Um, if you think of the cell surface of a cancer cell expressing this folate receptor alpha, then the drug itself is an antibody to that. Um, there's then attached to that antibody something called a cleavable linker, and then to that is attached a tubulin-targeting agent. Now, what happens when this antibody drug conjugate binds to the cell um, surface, the folate receptor alpha, it gets rapidly internalized by the cell, and it goes right to the DNA and breaks it up and, and basically kills the cell. Um, so it gets into the cell, helps it stop growth, and then the after effects of that also helps to stop the growth of other neighboring cells. Um, it has been shown to have, um, you know, with the accelerated approval, we're very excited to start using this in um, platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. And I think it goes without, we could, you know, go without saying, but we should mention that the way that all of these drugs have been approved is by clinical trials that uh, our patients uh, are willing to take part of. And we, um, this accelerated approval comes from a, a, a trial that um, was really done in the past several years, so very, very recent trial that was rapidly accrued to. Um, so we thank you for your participation in these clinical trials, and it really is the way that we're moving the field forward. Part of managing recurrent ovarian cancer and just ovarian cancer in general is managing side effects that comes with the treatment. Um, and would love to put a plug-in for um, excellent palliative care as we're treating ovarian cancer. Really the approach to patient, family, and caregiver-centered healthcare, focusing on optimal management of distressing symptoms, incorporating the psychosocial and spiritual care that is so important to cancer care as well. Um, you know, whenever we're deciding on treatment options, we really need to understand what is 
your understanding of the disease prognosis, what is our understanding as the, as the cancer treating providers, the potential for the treatment-related toxicities that can come with the treatment. And so making sure that we have time for discussion of all of this as we're figuring out the next best care. Some of the main side effects that we see from ovarian cancer are, of course, going to be cancer-related pain, um, nausea and vomiting that can come from the treatment itself, but also from um, potentially um, malignant disease that kind of that disrupts the bowel patterns uh, for people with ovarian cancer. Um, we also see, unfortunately still, um, a lot of problems with neuropathy with many of the treatments, especially the taxane-based therapy that we use. Um, and we can see things like lymphedema, where you have leg swelling because of lymphatic involvement of the cancer or potentially our surgery. Um, and then hormone-related symptoms that can happen as well. Those are some of, I don't need to list them for those of you who have experienced them, but we certainly want to take those into account when we are individualizing treatment and certainly management with our um, palliative care colleagues and getting everyone in the family and the caregiver um, that's, that's helping to take care of people with ovarian cancer is so important. Um, and so I think that in general, what where the big advance is right now for treatment of palliative care is just really involving palliative care specialists earlier in the diagnosis of ovarian cancer. So it's not something that just means end-of-life care. It's something that is happening throughout the entire disease process. Um, so a, a generally an overview here. Um, I'm happy to take more questions specifically about palliative care towards the end of the program. Thank you so much, Dr. Hageman. That was just a wonderful presentation, a very stellar presentation, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr, and Dr. Kerr is a pathologist, Hospital Pathways, Pathology Associates, Divisions of Cytopathology, Gynecologic and Molecular Pathology, Alina Health Laboratories, Alina Health Care Institute. And Dr. Kerr will be addressing the role of a pathologist, understanding your pathology report, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and she'll focus particularly on discussion of the 2021 CARES Act. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak today. It is my great pleasure to explain pathology reports and some related topics about technology and online medical records. Uh, so I'm a pathologist, and I, I create pathology reports every day as part of my job. A pathologist is a medical doctor who graduates from medical school with the rest of your doctors and then specializes in diagnostics and laboratory testing. So every time you get blood drawn or biopsy or surgery, that blood or tissue or fluid goes to pathology, uh, also known as the, the clinical laboratory. A pathology diagnosis of cancer can be made by taking out some of the fluid around the organs or taking a small sample of the tumor with a needle through the skin. And sometimes surgery might actually be the first step to a pathology diagnosis to try to get a very large ovarian mass out intact so that the tumor doesn't spill into the abdomen. So there are a variety of ways to obtain this tissue for the pathologist. 
After the biopsy or surgery, the specimen is processed onto glass slides for the pathologist to look at under a microscope. So as uh, was previously mentioned, high-grade serous carcinoma is the most common type of advanced epithelial tubal ovarian cancer. Um, but there are many other types of ovarian cancer, such as low-grade serous carcinoma as opposed to high-grade serous carcinoma, uh, borderline tumors, which can be a sort of a chronic type of ovarian cancer, endometroid carcinoma, clear cell carcinoma, mucinous carcinoma, and even sex cord stromal tumors like granulosa cell tumor are sometimes referred to as ovarian cancer. These different kinds of cancer can have very different approaches to treatment and molecular testing algorithms, as Drs. Brewer and Hageman mentioned. So the t even the type of ovarian cancer that you have might dictate which first molecular test uh, you get because we can predict what types of um, genetic uh, alterations might be present in the tumor based on the histologic subtype. So it is really important to get this step right in pathology. I mean, even in the last month, I can think of at least three cases where high-stage ovarian cancer was almost certain clinically based on the imaging and tumor markers in the blood. But the biopsy that I examined proved an entirely different type of cancer or even benign tumors that radically changed the treatment plan. So I know it, sometimes it takes a while to get the pathology report back, but this can be extremely important to determining um, the next steps for a therapy. It usually takes only a few days to prepare a pathology report after especially a small tissue sample is sent to pathology, but it can take longer for ovarian cancers that are rare or have unusual characteristics where multiple studies or opinions from other pathologists are needed to obtain the most correct diagnosis and staging. Next, I'll talk about the pathology report itself, which has multiple components. So the one component that's the most important is the final diagnosis, and you'll see a section of this in the pathology report. The final diagnosis contains the tumor type, most importantly. We try to be as specific as possible about the type of the tumor um, because all of the basic treatment plans are based on those very specific tumor types and grades. After the diagnosis, there might also be a comment from the pathologist about the diagnosis to explain anything difficult or unusual about the case for your oncologist to be aware of. Um, the results of any special studies that are done to help make the diagnosis will be recorded in the report, so any immunostains that need to be done to help make the tumor type diagnosis will be there. And then if you have a major cancer surgery, the staging synoptic report will be there, um, as Dr. Runowitz mentioned about staging. The staging part of the report describes exactly where the cancer was found and the size of the tumor. So, um, the ovaries, fallopian tubes, elsewhere in the belly, lymph nodes and fluids, exactly what was involved by cancer will be described in that synoptic report for the staging. That staging determines if more therapy is needed, if the cancer has spread in the belly, uh, or if it's confined to the ovary, maybe it's better at early stage to just watch and wait um, and see what happens with the cancer because some patients with early stage cancer are cured without more therapy. Um, I know that these pathology reports may be difficult to understand, even with good medical backgrounds, so 
be sure to go over them with your cancer care team and, and ask a lot of questions about them. I, I also encourage you to keep an electronic or paper copy of all of your pathology reports for future reference. This becomes really important um, to have, especially you know, years down the road when hopefully memory fades of your cancer diagnosis and treatment and, and you've moved on with your life. Um, you know, if you then have, say, a lung nodule that comes up on imaging uh, and a biopsy is done and your uh, pathology was done elsewhere and you live somewhere else now, having that prior pathology report um, to give to your pathologist can be just really helpful and, and sometimes critical to making an accurate diagnosis for that new lesion. So that very technical information in the prior pathology reports, if I see it, will save a lot of time and money in making the correct diagnosis for, for a current tumor that might be recurrence or might be something totally unrelated. Okay, so moving on from the pathology report itself, uh, Dr. Mesner asked me to say a word about recent changes in online access to your medical records. Uh, so in the last few years, um, especially over COVID, many care teams have started communicating with patients through online applications or portals that work on your smartphone or computer. And um, a lot of virtual care appointments done online rather than in person were instituted during COVID as a measure to help stop the transmission of COVID when we were early in the pandemic and, and before vaccines were, were helping. Um, and, and a lot of that was funded through the 2021 CARES Act. Um, as part of uh, regulations with online medical records, though, um, it's, it's good to know that you're able to access your pathology reports, CT scans, and the visit notes from your doctors online if you have that, that online portal. One major difference you may see now uh, that you might not have noticed earlier is that pathology reports or radiology scans were previously held historically for a few days after they were signed out by the pathologist or radiologist to give a chance for your doctor to review before releasing to you online. But now, um, with the newer regulations, uh, your results are released immediately for you to see if you choose to have access to those online. So having those results immediately available can be overwhelming to some patients or can be very empowering to have those, patient, those results immediately as soon as they're available. Um, depending on your preference, this is something to talk about with your doctor ahead of time in terms of how you want to handle receiving those important results and how you'll be supported through that process knowing that you might see the results first even before your doctor knows about them. Okay, that's all I have for today. Thanks so much for listening to me talk about how pathology is important in ovarian cancer treatment. I'm turning this back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was really an outstanding, stellar presentation. And really, for everyone to understand the very important role of the pathologist. And I know you'll have lots of questions for Dr. Kerr during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our Next speaker is Ms. Kara Rogan, and Ms. Rogan is a life certified genetic counselor, Department of Clinical Genomics, Mayo Clinic, and Ms. Rogan will be addressing the role of the genetic counselor in understanding your genetic counselor's recommendations. It's really my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Rogan.
Hannah, well, thank you for having me today, and thank you for that uh, introduction, Dr. Messner. Um, so the, the main role of a genetic counselor is to help facilitate and guide patients diagnosed with ovarian cancer through the process of genetic testing. Um, we've found that about 20% of women diagnosed with ovarian cancer are found to have an underlying genetic cause for their ovarian cancer. And the likelihood of finding an underlying genetic cause may be higher in women with a personal or family history of breast, ovarian, prostate, pancreatic, colon, or uterine cancer. And when we find that someone has an underlying hereditary cause for their ovarian cancer, we know that they had a higher lifetime chance of developing ovarian cancer than the average woman, which is about a 1% to 2% risk for the average woman. Um, so like some of my uh, previous panelists have mentioned, uh, the first genes that we identified that are linked to hereditary ovarian cancer are the BRCA1 and BRCA2 or BRCA genes. And prior to 2013, these were really the only genes that we had available for clinical testing, but we now test for more genes that we know about that are linked to hereditary risk for ovarian cancer, such as BRIP1, RAD51C, RAD51D, the Lynch syndrome genes, and others. So some women who were maybe diagnosed a while back and maybe were only tested for BRCA1 and BRCA2 and that testing was negative, they may now be eligible for updated multi-gene panel testing. At a genetic counseling appointment, the genetic counselor reviews what will be tested, what the possible results might be, and what those results might mean for the patient and their family members. The genetic counselor will also discuss insurance coverage of testing and laws surrounding genetic discrimination. Genetic testing is then typically performed on a blood or saliva sample. And once the results of genetic testing are available, the genetic counselor reviews the results and interprets them for the patient. One benefit of genetic testing is for the treatment of cancer, which our previous panelists have discussed. Um, so again, women with a mutation in one of the BRCA genes may respond better to those PARP inhibitors. Another benefit of genetic testing is identifying other cancer risks for the patient and her relatives. If a gene mutation is identified, this may tell the patient that they have increased risks of developing other cancers. And when that's the case, we can provide some recommendations for high-risk screening or preventive measures to prevent cancer where we can or detect cancer at an early stage. Also, when a gene mutation is identified in someone with ovarian cancer, genetic testing is then recommended for their relatives. Their first-degree relatives, including their parents, full siblings, and children, have a 50% chance of having that same gene mutation. And other relatives, like aunts, uncles, grandchildren, grandparents, could also have a chance of having that same gene mutation. For other relatives who test positive, some of those same screening and preventive measures can then be implemented. At this time, we don't really have effective screening for ovarian cancer, 
So generally when someone is found to have a genetic mutation that increases their lifetime risk of developing ovarian cancer, the recommendation is to do a risk-reducing salpingo-oophorectomy, which is removal of the ovaries and fallopian tubes. One area of promise with ovarian cancer screening is a new test called the gallery test, which screens for several different types of cancer, um, including ovarian cancer through a blood sample. Because this is a very new test at this point, I'm not going to be going into any further detail about this test today, uh, but hope to have some more details to share with you next year. So genetics is a very rapidly changing field. We're making new discoveries every day about the hereditary causes of cancer and how to improve our genetic tests. We also continue to gain insight into the exact cancer risks associated with each gene as there is some uncertainty at this time, even with the BRCA genes. Genetic counselors really remain at the forefront of these changes to educate patients and providers about advances in the field. They're also available to help families cope with a diagnosis of hereditary cancer and empower them to be proactive regarding their cancer risks. Genetic counselors also partner closely with the rest of the care team to communicate results and current medical management guidelines. We also help connect patients and their families with available research studies. So that's all I have for you today, but happy to answer any questions at the end here. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Rogan. That was really outstanding. Uh, it's a stellar presentation, a lot of excellent information about the role of the genetic counselor and your recommendations for patients. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Samantha Fortune. Ms. Fortune is an oncology social worker, and she's our Women's Cancers Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And she will be discussing Cancer Care's free programs and services and our, our Hope Line as well. My great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fortune. Thank you, Dr. Messner. As mentioned, my name is Sam Fortune, and I'm the Women's Cancers Program Coordinator, as well as an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling, support groups, educational workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. In my role at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and family impacted by cancer diagnosis, as well as develop programs and initiatives for our women's cancer department. Individuals diagnosed with ovarian cancer may choose to supplement existing social networks by either joining a support group or engaging in counseling. Many hospitals, treatment centers, and nonprofit organizations offer such services. Um, and also being part of a member of a support group can offer people the opportunity to speak with one another, going through similar experiences, obtain information, and provide support. Currently, Cancer Care offers um, a specific ovarian cancer as well as GYN cancer support groups online. The ovarian cancer support group aims to reduce feelings of loneliness and anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of empowerment, provide practical information about treatments and resources, and address ways to communicate with one's medical teams as well as their loved ones. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by um, our oncology social workers who provide support and guidance. 
These groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and group members must register to join. You can register for our online support group through our website at cancercare.org, and then hit, hitting our services and then support groups. After you completing the registrations, you'll have access to our, our online support groups 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Individuals also may experience practical and financial concerns throughout their treatment. Please note that if you're encountering such hardships, there are organizations that may be able to help you. Cancer Care's Resource Navigation offers a short-term, strength-based approach service to both patients and caregivers affected by cancer nationally. A trained specialist will work with a client in connecting them to financial resources, referrals, and further assistance. If you're interested in learning more about the support services we offer, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are trained in how an ovarian cancer diagnosis can impact an individual as well as their loved ones. We are here to offer support throughout this experience, and we look forward to hearing from you. It's been such a pleasure to speak on this program today. Thank you for your attention, and now I'll turn the program back to um, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Fortune. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful resource for um, all the participants on the call today. And now we're going to move on to Q&A. I'm going to ask all of our, um, to ask Regina to bring all of our speakers on board. We're going to take as many of your questions as possible. And Regina will explain to you how to queue up the questions as well. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And um, we have a question for Dr. Hageman. Um, is surgery a common option for treating ovarian cancer? Um, thank you. I think um, perhaps this refers to treating the recurrent ovarian cancer. Um, I would say just to clarify that surgery is a, very much a part of our upfront um, original treatment for ovarian cancer in addition to upfront chemotherapy, um, that cytoreduction or debulking surgery that we do um, in the upfront setting. Um, that's the best known place for surgery in ovarian cancer. And so our, our goal there is to get to no gross residual disease with the original surgery. Um, and so I would say it, it, mean, it is, you know, remains the stalwart of care there. Um, in the recurrent setting, um, there have been studies about this over the years. And, um, you know, I think it, it really depends on if we can, again, get to no gross residual disease. Typically, it's reserved for people in a platinum-sensitive setting with what we would say oligometastatic disease, which could be removed to no gross residual. And so I'll leave it at that. It'll be very individualized based on where that recurrence is and, and whether um, you know, treatment um, is, you know, uh, there are other treatment considerations as well. Thank you so much. And a question for Dr. Runowitz, um, and this is a general question. Um, what things do we need to understand and expect um, when diagnosed with ovarian cancer. If you could just uh, give a, a summary for people of things that they might expect. And, um. Sure. Well, as mentioned, I think it's very important that um, there's a treatment team, uh, starting with the surgeon, which, who is the gynecologic oncologist. And the gynecologic oncologist may actually, um, in many cases, um, for example, in every institution that I've been in, 
gives the chemotherapy as well as does the surgery. Um, so I think um, you know having access to a G1 oncologist is is really key to the best surgery, and then having um, a careful review of the pathology, as we've heard today. Um, it's really a team, and there's usually a tumor board, and you want to ask, well, was this presented at a tumor board? What did the tumor board conclude? What's the next best step? And for patients with recurrent tumor, I would um, strongly recommend consideration of clinical trials. It's only through clinical trials that we make these advances. And I, I've been very encouraged in the last few years of the numbers of drugs that are marching down the pike and, and becoming available. And it's only through clinical trials that we make these advances. Excellent. Thank you so much. And that's so important what you said, um, that those advances really are based on so many people participating in clinical trials. It makes such, such a difference. And a question from one of our participants, um, Dr. Brewer, um, how would you treat a platinum-sensitive, BRCA-positive, recurrent, advanced ovarian cancer patient who became resistant to PARP inhibitors? Um, would you prescribe an alternative PARP inhibitor than Avastin? You know, that's actually, that's a great question, and there's not really a definitive answer to that. We think, based on several studies, that once someone has failed, or actually, failed sounds like a bad word, but we use it in the oncology world. In other words, they have stopped responding to a PARP inhibitor. Reinducing them with another PARP inhibitor probably is not going to work. Um, I think, you know, certainly if they have not had Avastin, Avastin is definitely a possibility. Um, another thing that that you know a lot of people don't use, but I have found very helpful in my practice, is to look at the estrogen receptor because sometimes that's a that's an option that doesn't carry a lot of morbidity. And then of course, you know, the next option is to go back to chemotherapy. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um... Um, and this question is for um, uh, Ms. Rogan. Um, I have young daughters, ages three and seven, um, three and seven. When and how should I speak to them about their genetic risk for women's cancers? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we generally don't recommend doing genetic testing until the age of 18, um, just because most of the hereditary cancer syndromes um, have adult onset, so it wouldn't really affect them before they turn age 18. Um, I would say in terms of talking to children about, uh, you know, gynecologic cancer risk, um, as their parents, you probably know them best and know when they might be the most receptive to that and, and what age would be best. Um, I know at Mayo Clinic and, and other places where I've worked, there have been some excellent child life specialists who can even help with those conversations as well. So, um, and they are available not just to um, children as patients. They are available to adults who have, you know, concerns that they could address, um, like having those conversations. 
Excellent. Oh, thank you so much. I hope it's very helpful to our um, participants. Um, and a um, question for Ms. Um, Fortune. Um, I have a current ovarian cancer, and I'm struggling to discuss this with my extended family, who knew I had a hard time with my initial treatment. Do you have any advice for what I can or should do in terms of meeting with my family? Yeah, and I know it's hard to have those conversations with family members to begin with. I think I would take time and sit down and think of what you need from your family and outline it for them and like in a, a like a, I guess in a calm way and like discuss some of the concerns you are having. I think a lot of times family feels helpless in these type of situations and they don't know what to say, so sometimes you would have to kind of guide them. So I would think about what are some things that you need from your emotional support? Identify two or three people you feel like you can have those conversations with, and then just tell them, these are some of the needs I have, and see how they receptive they are. And I always say, too, like some people, you can identify them for different needs. Like one person can provide physical support, and then there's another person that can provide that emotional support. So it's looking at your um, support system as a whole, and then try to identify who can help you in what regard and telling them your needs in that way. Thank you so much. Thank you. Excellent. And for Dr. Kerr, um, so um, do women uh, get a CA-125 test or other tests on a regular routine basis um, when they have ovarian cancer? Are there certain tests that are just done routinely? Um, That's a great question. <clears throat> I can sort of start to answer that, and then I might punt it to one of my um, oncology colleagues. In, in my practice uh, as a pathologist, when a biopsy performed, it can be really helpful to have those tumor markers available because it can help narrow down the tests that I need to do on the tissue to figure out the diagnosis. So for example, if a patient has widespread cancer through the belly, there's a variety of different primary sites where that can arise. It can be the gastrointestinal tract, it can be the ovary, it can be somewhere else, breast entirely, you know. so. Having those tumor markers um, like CA-125, CEA, even germ cell markers like AFP or HCG, um, other gastrointestinal markers like CA-99 can sort of help me give, get an idea of how the tumor is differentiating and secreting into the blood in terms of what kind of tumor it is in general. And then that helps me look at the tumor and figure out what stains to order uh, if it's not clear what tumor type it is. Um, but I'll, I'll turn it over to one of my oncology colleagues in terms of the timing in, during follow-up, uh, during observation to determine whether a tumor has recurred, which is sort of a different use for those markers. Dr. Runowitz or Dr. Pro, do you both want to comment on that? Sure. Uh, so before the, the patient goes to the operating room, I personally found that it's a great idea to um, do a panel of of markers to see what the tumor is secreting into the blood because these are very sensitive and if the tumor makes, uh, say, CA125, knowing that uh, what it was preoperatively and then following it postoperatively and following chemotherapy um, is, is really helpful. And if you put it on a log graph, if it if the number actually falls by a log, then that's a very good sign. So I think getting them before you go to the operating room or before you get your first treatment is going to be very helpful 
and then following those tumor markers um, is, is very important. Okay. Dr. Brewer, do you want to add anything? Or? Well, I, yeah, I, I agree completely with Carolyn. I think another thing, you know, if, a, if, if after a patient has completed chemotherapy, um, we usually follow the CA125. That's been a little controversial, but it is something that I continue to do in my practice. And if the CA125 goes up, but there's no evidence of disease on the CAT scan, many people will actually wait um, and mm -hmm. watch that for a while um, before they start treatment. Again, controversial. Everybody kind of has their own way of doing that. Excellent. Thank you. Um, well, I want to thank all of our speakers. I'm going to ask our speakers each to give a quick takeaway, um, like a sentence takeaway um, from what you'd like people to take away from the program today. It was a lot covered today. Um, so I'm going to ask Dr. Bonowitz if you would start first with just a takeaway. Sure. I think it's really important to go to the experts and have a multidisciplinary uh, team uh, help in the, in the decision making and in the, in the planning of treatment. And so if possible, if you can go to a major university, um, the major university usually has a GYN oncology team and they assemble a group of experts for uh, the tumor board. And I think that's critical. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, Dr. Brewer? Well, yeah, I'll just piggyback onto that because I think if, if, you, if you find a gynecologic oncologist um, to take care of you, which is what we all recommend, then I think, you know, being fairly quick to send off some of this um, tumor testing and of course, the genetic testing is important in everyone. But the but the tumor testing, um, as new treatments come along, that's going to open up um, new options for patients sooner rather than later. Excellent, thank you. And Dr. Hageman. Yes, I think the value of clinical trials um, should not be understated. We definitely uh, you know, appreciate everyone's involvement in clinical trials, and that's the way we're moving the disease um, and treatment for the disease forward, as evidenced by even just yesterday a new FDA approval for um, the mervatuximab drug that um, will you know, just open up new avenues for treatment against ovarian cancer. So a very hopeful time in ovarian cancer. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Dr. Kerr? Yeah, um, I think the most important thing from a pathology standpoint is that, you know, electronic medical records are getting better at talking to one another between health systems. So if you end up moving, sometimes those are available to your new doctors where you live. But sometimes they're not, and so I think it's helpful, especially for your pathology reports, your molecular test results, and your germline genetic testing results. Just, you know, print those off or have a PDF copy electronically that you have in a folder somewhere um, so that you have those available in case those get lost down the line. It can be so helpful to your treatment team um, going forward to have those records available, the exact records, not just, you know, what you remember or wrote down. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Ms. Rogan? Yeah, I think the main takeaway from my talk is just to talk to your care team providers about meeting with a genetic counselor to discuss genetic testing and, and possibly move forward with the testing. Um, again, it can be very important for your treatment as well as your family members. 
Excellent. Thank you so much. And Ms. Fortune. Um, going through ovarian cancer can be very stressful and overwhelming, but you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of supportive services, whether it's emotional support, financial support, physical support. So don't be afraid to ask for help, whether it be through um, your treatment center, um, through nonprofit organizations, or through family and friends. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, this has been an extraordinary program. Um, I have to say I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. And I want to thank our participants for asking such great questions, which really help to really, um, really to allow for more dialogue between you, our participants, and our, our speakers. And I want to identify that for all of you, there are some of you, there are many more questions in the queue that we were able to take. So that I want to remind all of you that um, for those of you who either asked a question, have a question yet to ask, or are thinking of a question, all of you, I want you to go back to your treating healthcare team with what you've learned on the program today and take that information back to your treating healthcare team because they have all your records, all your information, and ask the question of them. And ask it over and over again until you get the answers that you need um, and that you're satisfied with in terms of continuing your uh, tr your, your treatment and what, what you need to have done. Um, most importantly, we would not want any one of you to feel alone in coping with ovarian cancer or any type of cancer. We want you to now know that you're part of the community of support and that there are many organizations out there, including Cancer Care, that you can contact. And if they don't have the services, they'll refer you to another organization. So you'll get connected. Um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.